dancing crew. Trip for two. Nail the final interview. Game with Doug. Brand new mug. Come here, kid. Give me a hug. The more you want to do, the more we want to do. Boosters designed for COVID-19 variants are now available. If you've had your primary series, schedule an updated COVID-19 booster appointment as soon as you're eligible. Sponsored by Pfizer and BioNTech. And then I became a lecturer at Miami Harvard Business School, which is the business school at the University of Miami. Little things started happening, and I was like, oh, this is interesting. I had a colleague who was calling me her assistant, even though I wasn't her assistant, like in meetings. And she would be like, oh, me and my assistant, we're here. And I used to be like, I'm not your assistant. Like, and I had to tell her, like, I'm not my assistant during the meeting. It was so awkward. Like every time she did it, I used to, I used to correct her. So you um, corrected her immediately? Like that wasn't I a corrected fear her of life. Immediately, immediately, like all the time I used to correct her. But then little by little, I was like, oh, I'm not being invited to this meeting. What's going on here? Like what? I, I saw that there was some effect to that. And it wasn't until I put it in writing and I was like, can you please stop calling me your assistant? That, you know, that stopped. But then with that stopped me being invited to certain meetings and certain things. Mi gente, dímelo, dímelo, what's up, what's good? Welcome to another episode of the Quien Dueres podcast brought to you by Plural. You already know it's your boy Pavel bring you another special episode. You already know on this podcast, the mission is to redefine professionalism. Every week we have a new guest join us for a candid conversation to explore their journey between professionalism and authenticity. Speaking of guests, the clip in the intro is with this week's guest, Dr. Marisol Capillan. Before getting into the full conversation, let me give you a quick bio so you have a little bit more context. To get a full bio, please be sure to check out the show notes. So Dr. Marisol is a former lecturer at the University of Miami, specifically Miami Herbert Business School. She's also a speaker and trainer on various topics, including leadership, diversity, equity, and inclusion. In addition, she's also a certified executive coach. She graduated with a master's in leadership and a doctoral degree in higher education leadership from the University of Miami. Her dissertation focus was actually on the trajectory of women to leadership positions. As an Afro-Latina, a mother and immigrant, she's faced and witnessed many institutional and systemic barriers and biases that Black women face in their career trajectory. All of this experience is what really sparked her passion in women's empowerment and the need to increase representation of women specifically in positions of power. She actually just launched her book, Leadership is a Responsibility, about her own career journey experience as a Black Hispanic woman in academia and also the stories of other Black women in the workplace. She believes that there is a need of responsible leaders to create a more equitable society where minorities can belong and thrive. Now that you have a little bit more context with our guests, let's jump into this dope episode that you're not going to want to miss. All right, well, let's start off where we always start off with the word authenticity. For you, when you hear the word, what comes to mind for you? What does it mean to you? So for me, authenticity is being able to be who I am, like truly who I am and not being reprimanded by it. So I'm not trying to be someone else in order for me to fit in. So that's what authenticity means. It's a word that's supposedly supposed to mean, you know, being who you are, but sometimes when you are who you are, 
you encounter a lot of problems because you are supposed to act a different way in order for you to be accepted. Yo, reprimanded? That's a that's a powerful word. Sounds like you had consequences. What were some of those early experiences maybe growing up when you're trying to be yourself and you were reprimanded? So that's very interesting because um, I grew up in the Dominican Republic, so I'm Dominican, right? And I remember this instance when I finished high school and I went to one university to look at the type of majors that they have, right? So I go in there and I see that you have, uh, there was a communications major and then a hospitality major. And I always lean into communication. I wanted to have my own TV show. And I remember going back to my grandmother and saying, well, I think I found what I wanted to do. Like I want to be on TV. Like that's what I want to do. I want to have my own show. I want to interview people. And I remember she looked at me and she like, told me well why do you think you're going to have a chance on tv like people like us don't are not on tv right and that was kind of my first instance in me knowing that because i looked a certain way or i could i mean i couldn't be authentic in order for me to fit in i needed to choose other type of professions and that was like one of the beginnings oh there was an earlier beginning before that sorry uh-huh. But what does she mean by people like us, though? Because you were living Afro in the Latinas, Black women in a Hispanic uh-huh. community. Because if you watch TV, you don't see a lot of Afro-Latinas on TV or in the media. And in a country that mostly looks like me, the people that represent us are usually people that are light-skinned, right? But aside from that, earlier than that, I remember being eight years old and I had like my hair. So I had an Afro big afro un pajon. and they were trying to relax my hair because you know in order for me to look presentable, I had to get rid of my curls so that was actually the earlier earlier memory of me tr- needed to change in order for me to fit in it was that i needed to relax my hair because nobody wanted that pajon, or i didn't look representable in ese pajon. so i was like what is this i'm only eight wow and who told you those things was it also family it was my mom so I didn't grow up with my mom and I met her later on. Uh, that was one of my first meetings with my mom. And that was my one of my first stories that defined my relationship with her. It was her attempt to get rid of my curls. Like I remember sitting on the chair crying, saying, I want my curls, I want my curls, I want my curls. And she was like, no, you know, it's a pajon, you know, people don't like this because, you know, it wasn't until recently that we had curly, like, you know, curly products for our hair. So actually, like we live in this country and I remember being in the Dominican Republic and we didn't know how to take care of our hair. The only way to take care of our hair was by relaxing it and then, you know, looking more white or having straight hair. So from that age, I remember like constantly I was reminded that in order for me to fit in, I had, I had to change my hair, had to change the way that I dress, I had to change careers, like it impacted my whole life. That was before I entered the workplace. Wow. And I've heard that story pretty often as well. So you're not the only one. But it, it, it's interesting too. this idea of you at such an early age, before people telling you that your natural hair wasn't uh, beautiful, or it wasn't professional. You really liked it, though. Like, I loved why did it. You, why did you love it at such an early age when people were telling you it wasn't the thing to do? Because it was my hair. <laughs> yeah. It's like as simple as, as that. It's like, it's my hair. I love my hair. Like, this is something I found my curls very beautiful. So I couldn't comprehend at eight years of age, why was it a problem? Like, I don't understand. If I don't want to relax my hair, why was I forced to relax my hair? It wasn't until I grew up that I understood, like, 
oh no, you know, Afro-Latinas or Afro-Dominicans don't have the same luxury to be natural and be authentic. In order for us to fit in, we have to change. It's like our natural self needs to be left at the door in order for us to fit in and succeed, even in the yeah. work environment. Yeah. Like, like you said, it, it's low. Like it's literally how it grows out of my head. <laughs> like, yeah. Like what's the problem? Yeah. No, that makes sense to me. And here you are at this point where you're like, I want to be on TV, people telling you no. Like, how did that impact your decision on what career you wanted to explore later? So there are certain things. First is the way that I look, right? So I'm dark skinned. You don't have people that look like me um, on TV. And then, then the second thing is that we come from a very low socioeconomic class. Yo crecí en el barrio. So, en el barrio no hay dinero donde yo crecí, right? So I'm there and, you know, in order for you to gain, like make money or get out of poverty, you have to choose like becoming a doctor and, or become a lawyer. Like all of those professions that I usually look up to in society. So I think that also your low socioeconomic class prevents you from being your authentic self because your decisions are not based on authenticity. Like you cannot pick certain hobbies because if the hobbies are not paying you, your family is going to look at you like, what are you doing? So the more poor you are, the less you can be into arts or things that you know, you're doing it for fun. So being authentic, I think is very much linked to how much money you have and how much you don't have to care about society because poor people don't have the luxury of being authentic many times. Yeah, or, or they can be, but then, you potentially miss out on certain opportunities. So like, because I, I, I think in many ways, authenticity is risky because there's a lot of judgment that comes with it, right? So mm-hmm. it's kind of like a privilege for people to feel confident enough to be authentic and not care what people think because they're like, oh, well, I, if you don't like me, then like, I don't need you. I have enough this, this and that to have options. I think that's exactly. the key, right? It's kind of like, the risk to then have the options to do whatever you want. So, but the thing, and, and that's, that's so correct, because when you look at being poor, because we don't talk about authenticity and the link to your socioeconomic class. Mm. When you're poor and you're choosing to do something that comes authentic to you, but that thing is not bringing in money, then you get judgment from your own family into like you're wasting your time instead of helping us. You know, you're being authentic, you're being happy. Why aren't you doing things that are bringing money into the door so that we can eat? So yeah. you have this dichotomy where you cannot be authentic at home because tiempo, but you cannot also be authentic at work. So you're leaving this like you're just trying to fit in. So I do think that authenticity is a privilege based on color and socioeconomic class, not only color and you know status and, and sex. That's, that's a really interesting point. It's, I think it's the first time like we've spoken about poverty, but not not the point of poverty, uh, authenticity being a privilege that a lot of people don't even feel safe enough to explore because they have to survive. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Exactly. So what, and mm-hmm. no, I was gonna say, so for you in that scenario, like, where was your mind going as far as like, in this survival mode, this is the career that I want to explore, or even think about because I need to put money in, in, I need to bring money in. So I left the DR when I was 16. And then when I was 16, I went to the US. And then soon, very soon after, I became homeless in the US. Um, and I had different jobs. I worked in McDonald's two chefs. I used to clean places. I used to do a lot of things in order for me to survive. So when you're in survival mode, I cannot just like, you know, 
go and do a career that doesn't pay me or, or go and explore options. I need to get food in the table. And throughout my college year, I, you know, there was opportunities to go and do things like going to the White House and help a politician or do an internship. Those are things that I couldn't do, even though, even though authentically I was very, I, I lean into politics and I lean into those type of engagements, but I couldn't do that because I needed to work. So going back to the privilege, right? So throughout my life, I had to choose things sometimes based on the economic opportunity, not because authentically I was drawn into doing that. So that's why it's very, you know, we have to talk about authenticity and how that's linked to, you know, your economic class and also the way you look. And so you have, um, there is a thing that I always talk about when I do gendering, um, gender equity workshops is that the more intersectionalities of identities you have, the, the harder it is for you to be authentic. So if you have low socioeconomic class, but then you're also black and you're a woman, uh, you know, it's, it's harder to be authentic because it's kind of all of those parts, you have to keep it in check in order for you to advance your career. Yeah, wow. So, what, so when did you get to the US? You said when you were in your late teens? Yes, late teens. What was that like even coming to the US? Because even that's an adjustment. That's an adjustment. I think that we're always adjusting, especially when you're not born in the US. And, you know, um, I came here and for me, I was the first person in my family to come to the US, especially the family who raised me. And I had this burden or, you know, a lot of immigrants, we have this burden that we have to make it because everybody's counting on us. Like you're coming yeah. back and you're helping out the family. And you got to send money back. You got to all that. Exactly. So it's like, do you have time to be authentic? You just have to go make it, make it happen. Um, so I had that burden and that mindset that I needed to make it happen. And I went to do my bachelor's degree and I just try to do like the fastest path. Like, how can I get my degree and go to work and have my full-time job? Like all of my decisions were, were based on economic mobility and also time. Like I cannot waste a lot of time something because that's going to prevent me from making money. Uh, because when you're in the U.S., it's very hard. Unless you're making money, you cannot survive. I was sleeping on a mattress on a floor for two years in a stranger's home. Like I didn't even know these people. And they basically rented a mattress on the floor next to their kitchen so I used to go there sleep and then get up in the morning and just work and then go back so when I met other people that were in their late teens living in the U.S. and doing all these activities and doing things that you know to feed their soul I was like how privileged are you that you don't have time to think about struggling or going to work you can just get up in the morning and say well I love painting and that's all I do after school, I'm like, no, after school, I have to go work. I even think it's a privilege to go to school and study things that you actually want to study. Like mm -hmm. I went to school just to get a job. I was like, you took electives mm -hmm. that you enjoyed? I was like, I took electives mm -hmm. that, that I knew I was just going to get an easy A in. <laughs> like yeah. the fact that people <laughs> study things in college that they actually want to study is mind blowing to me. Like I never understood that concept. Like I study things that were just going to get me a high paying job. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and that happens to a lot of people that come from low socioeconomic class. And when we talk about privilege and oppression, uh, we forget those little details. Like it's not only about, you know, discrimination and like blatant discrimination. Sometimes privilege comes even on your choices. Like you have choices, I don't. And that in and it itself is privilege. When you can be authentic, you have that choice. 
and that is privilege. Yeah. But explícame why you were sleeping on a bed in a kitchen with random strangers. Like, paint me the picture of you moving from the DR to the United States. It sounds like the reason you moved was to study here and go to school. Explain to me why you were doing that. So my mother did the papers for me to come to the U.S. And I came to the U.S. And like it happens to a lot of teenagers or some teenagers. Uh, she basically kicked me out of, out of the house. So I had no place to stay. So when she did that, and I usually barely talked about that because, you know, the, the cultural norm that never speak ill about your parents and all these things, right? So I didn't have a place to stay. So I came back to the Dominican Republic. And here is my grandmother who I was raised with because I didn't meet my mother until later on. And she's calling people in the U.S., like asking them, like, can she move in with you? Like she has her papers. All she needs is a place to stay. Um, so she's calling people. People are saying, no, it's a big responsibility. I can't have her at, at my place. Uh, you know, how can I have somebody that I don't even know? I'm 17 there and I'm like underage. So they're like very concerned, like something happens to me. My father's going to sue them. Like what's going to happen? So people were like, no, I'm not going to have a stranger in my home. So I completely understand that. But then I had the phone number of a lady that I met on a bus, casually. I met her on a bus while I was taking the bus to go to McDonald's to go to work. So I call her up from the DR and I'm like, you remember me? <laughs> you met, you, we met on a bus and I, I was taking the bus to go to my work and you said that I could call you to meet up with you one day. Well, actually I'm in the DR and my residency is going to expire in three years. I mean, in three months, if I stay here, because you know, the permanent resident card, if you spend more than three months in the DR, they get expired. So that's another thing, right? So I call her and she's like, oh, no problem, come to my house and you can stay at my house. So I came to her house, but she gave me a time limit. She was like, you can only be here for like, you know, three or four months. She couldn't have me there forever. Um, and then while I was work, I was with her, um, I was still working in McDonald's because my manager, an amazing person, he was like, whenever you come back, if you make it back to the DR, you have a job. And I was like, oh my God, things after that. So I come back and he gives me back my job. And I'm thinking, you know, this is great. I, this is a McDonald's job, but I'm like, I just need to be able to get back on track. So I'm living in this lady's house and I'm going to McDonald's. And then next thing you know, the time is coming up and I'm like, I don't know where to stay. So I'm going out looking for rent and rent in Miami is super expensive. You can't live in Miami. The poverty, like it's, it's, it's crazy how much money um, you have to pay in order for you to live in Miami compared to the amount of money you actually make. It doesn't make any sense. So the only thing that I could afford was, you know, I saw this sign and I was like, oh, $300 a month in order for me to live in this house. And I'm like, it's $300. That's all I can, I can afford. So I go and meet this person. She's like, this is what I have. Like, this is all I can offer you. And I was like, that's all I could pay. So I went and I lived with this lady for two years and while going through school. Is, so this is not the woman that you met on the bus. No, this is like after my time was up with this lady, I needed to leave. And I'm like, you know, you know, you got to be if people give you, a, you know, she already accepted me in her house. I wasn't going right. to abusar la confianza, right? Mm -hmm. So after that time was up, I needed to get out. And then I met, the, then I looked for a place to stay. And all that I could afford was that. So you were you were studying in the United States for a bit. You went back to Dominican Republic to visit. 
And then- No, I wasn't studying. I wasn't studying when I came. When I came, I came as a 16 years old girl who's first in the US. And then I had to leave because then I have a place to stay. I come back and I enroll myself in school and I go to McDonald's and I find a place to live. So within four or five months after coming back, when I'm living with this lady in her house, I'm already securing my job at McDonald's and I'm securing my education and I'm securing this mattress on the floor. And that's how I started in the US. Got it. Okay. So just and to I'm recap, 17. just to recap. So you came to the United States to visit, just like uh, to travel. I came to the US because my mother, my mother did the papers for me. She, ella me pidió. Because your mom was here in the US. So my mom was here in the US. So she, she requested my papers to come here. Got it. Okay. Okay. That makes sense. Okay. So your mom, so you grew up with your grandmother in the, Dominican Republic, but your mom is here in the U.S. So she requested you to come to the U.S., which is why you originally came to the U.S. to visit. Then you went back to DR because you didn't have a place to stay in the U.S., Mm-hmm. right? And then she was, like, as you, I, she was basically like, I did your papers. Like you have your papers. Got now, right? it. Like then that was my it. job. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, exactly. Because I didn't grow up with her. So, so we didn't have like that relationship. They can, you Got know, you're my it. mom and all of these things. Yeah. So okay. I'm there, I'm back. I get the $300 mattress on the floor and I'm working in McDonald's and I roll myself in college. So I finished my bachelor's degree with honors. Uh, and then I went for my master's degree and now I became the first person in my family with a doctoral degree and a master's degree. This is how I started my life in the US. Wow. What was college like for you? Because for me, growing up in the U.S., so I grew up in New York, and I went I went to school in Boston, and yeah, Boston is a different city than New York. There's like cultural differences. Well, there's cultural differences in just like the state, but then there's also me as a Dominican going to college where a bunch of people want to look like me. Like, there's a ton of differences there, but at least I have, let's call it an advantage potentially of just growing up in the U.S. and understanding the culture of like the U.S., right? Here you are, very different circumstances, and you're in this new world because it's like a completely different world. Mm-hmm. What was just like the college environment like for you? I always loved to study. So I was excited to go to school. I, I enjoy and I thrive in schools. That's how I ended up becoming a doctor <laughs> because I just love education. So I was there in college and I couldn't participate in a lot of the things that were extracurricular because I needed to go to work. So, you know, going back to authenticity and, you know, letting that part of myself grow. And it was very interesting. I had to learn the, finish learning the language because I had gone to a school here that taught me a little bit of English, but I had to do a one year study in English. So to learn a language. And then I enrolled into a four year degree. Uh, but it was very interesting. I was very involved. I was the president of a dance club. I was doing, I ran for college uh president i just i i did a bunch of stuff and i was like i will leave work at mcdonald's and i'll come here put my clothes in for dancing and i will do like leading a dance club you know group of students and then i will be running for student government i just did so many things and then i noticed that you know you had people that had all these advantages in life and they wouldn't put themselves out there now like here i am with two jobs making sandwiches and i'm here <laughs> running for student government <laughs> <laughs> Yo, yeah. So it sounds like you weren't intimidated at all. Before getting into that, let's take a quick break and hear from our sponsors. I wanted to know why some people who get COVID-19 get it so bad. I found out it may be because they have a high risk factor, such as heart disease, diabetes, being overweight, 
smoking, and asthma. Even if symptoms feel mild, these factors can increase your risk of COVID-19 turning severe. So if you're at high risk and test positive, there are things you can do, like asking your healthcare provider if an authorized oral treatment is right for you. Learn about an option at treatcovid19.com. This message is sponsored by Pfizer. Ken Duetas is supported by First Republic Bank. At First Republic, everyone gets a personal banker who's ready to sit down and answer your questions, no matter how complex. And did you know that First Republic's commitment to extraordinary service extends beyond its clients? First Republic is committed to strengthening the communities it serves. Learn more at firstrepublic.com, member FDIC, equal housing lender. Well, you have intimidation, but you cannot let intimidation like block you. What are you going to do with intimidation? You can let it drive you or you can let it block you. Like, yes, I was intimidated. I have, you know, I have an accent. I was barely speaking the language, but I was going to get myself out there. And I think school for me was like my escape because outside of school, it was work. And it was going back to the mattress on the floor. And it was like doing, like looking at this depressed type of environment. So when I was in school, I was thriving because I was just involved and it was my thing. It was education. I was tutoring students. I was helping them, you know, get into college, pass math exams. Like that was the thing that I was good at being in education. So for me, doing all those things were like my escape mechanism. Like it was my it was, I loved it, but at the same time, that's where I felt like I could be the most authentic, I guess. Interesting. That makes a lot of sense. And, and I think school for some people as well, especially college, is the first opportunity where they can choose what they want to study as well. I mean, I think there are outside pressures that force people into, you know, investment banking and law and whatever. But for some people, they choose to study whatever they're really interested in. You know, with some of that pressure coming from poverty, did you feel the pressure to go into a certain field or, or because you love studying so much, you decided, no, I'm going to study what I really enjoy? So, yes, I will say yes, because I want I needed to get my degree fast. So I couldn't do any degree that was like, oh, you need an extra two years because I, I needed to get out of school. Right. So my first degree choice was to become a mathematician. I love math. And then when I was studying and I used to be a math tutor, so I love math. I like math a lot. Um, then I noticed that I needed to do like extra classes on calculus. And that was going to push me like a whole year into, you know, that major. And then I looked at the business major and I was like, I like and it's much shorter. So I just went into business. I like business anyway, but that was one of the reasons why I chose business was because it was shorter. The degree was shorter than math. I don't have the luxury to just like, you know, spend my whole life figuring out what I want to do in life <laughs> because I need it to just get to the next step. And that happens with my master's and with my doctoral degree too. Right. Because that next step, as soon as you finish school, that means you could potentially stop working at McDonald's and work a higher paying job because you have these credentials. Exactly. So, so talk to I me see kids sometimes are like figuring out what they want in life, but I'm like, wow. <laughs> <laughs> You're like, I don't have time for that. I don't have time for that. So talk to me because it's, it's wild for me that, I mean, it's clear that you love school. You love school so much that you got not only a bachelor's, but you got um, a master's and a doctorate. And that's something that I, like, I don't like school. that much. There's no way. But not only that, you also eventually ended up working at an academic institution. So you're like continuously just surrounded by professors. learning, professors, academia, all of those kind of things. 
Talk to me about when you first started working, though, right? Because here you are, you have all these degrees, but I'm wondering if you are still in that survival mode. And the reason I'm asking that is because, as we spoke about before, survival for you means I don't have the privilege of not assimilating. I don't have the privilege of not code switching because I'm in survival mode. I'm trying to make it. I'm trying to make money. Like, is that what it was like? Did you go into it and say, I don't have the privilege of being authentic yet? Yeah. So that's a very interesting story because for one part of my living in school and all of these things, but I wasn't aware as an immigrant of like the challenges that black women face in the workplace and especially a person like me. Some of the things that happened to me, I was like, oh, maybe that just happened. Like, maybe this wasn't intended to be this way. You know, you always give the benefit of the doubt because you don't know. Like, I didn't know the American history and I didn't know, like, the history with discrimination and all these things. I started noticing what was happening to me when I was being authentic after I started reading things and I was like, oh, this makes sense. This is why I was hired like this. And this is why I'm not getting these opportunities to move up the ladder. Because as a person who's coming as an immigrant, you're not aware of the challenges of Black people in America, right? And when people look at me, I'm Black, and I'm a Black Dominican person. And then when I open my mouth, they're like, oh, you have an accent, so you're Black and Latina. And then, you know, it goes from there, right? So I started working. I, I loved my career. I first was hired as a temp. I thought it was a great opportunity. Well, look, I'm hired as a temp. I'm, I'm getting the, my foot in the door. But then I noticed that other people that didn't look like me were not hired as, that, you know, a lot of minority women are hired as a temp as they start their career. So it's like they, people give you the chance, they crack the door open to see if you'll make it instead of just giving you the full job with opportunities and, you know, benefits and all like that. But that's fine. That led me into continue working as an admin in higher education. And then I became a lecturer at Miami Herbert Business School, which is the business school at the University of Miami. Little things started happening. And I was like, oh, this is interesting. I had a colleague who was calling me her assistant, even though I wasn't her assistant, like in meetings. And she would be like, oh, me and my assistant, we're here. And I used to be like, I'm not your assistant. Like, and I had to tell her, like, I'm not my assistant during the meeting. It was so awkward. Like every time she did it, I used to, I used to correct her. So you um, corrected her immediately? Like that wasn't I a corrected fear her of like... immediately, immediately, like all the time I used to correct her. But then little by little, I was like, oh, I'm not being invited to this meeting. What's going on here? Like what I, I saw that there was some effect to that. And it wasn't until I put it in writing and I was like, can you please stop calling me your assistant? That, you know, that stopped. But then with that stopped me being invited to certain meetings and certain things. So I started, I, I did my master's in leadership and I started teaching at UM. And then um, when I was teaching at UM, basically what happened is I was told that in order for me to move up the ladder and to succeed in academia, I needed to get my doctoral degree, right? Because, you know, in order for you to, to, to move up, that's what happens. And I'm coming from a barrio and I've been on survival mode all this, like all my years. So for me, you're telling me what I need to do. I'm going to get it done. Like I'm not playing. I'm going to go and get my doctoral degree. I'm not going to be one person who's going to tell you that I'm going to get a doctoral degree and not, not do it. And then, you know, the Black Lives Matter movement started. And by that time, I think I was code switching a lot. And I was, you know, using my extensions, making sure that I spoke in a, in a particular way. I wore clothes in a particular way in order for me to fit in. 
And after Black Lives Matter happened, I was like, you know what? I'm going to wear my Afro. Like, what is this? Like, why, why am I relaxing my hair? Why am I putting all these chemicals in my hair? So I started using my Afro more often, but I was the only person in, in the department with an Afro. So I became like that one faculty member that was walking around with Afro. I was like doing things for gender equity, diversity, and inclusion. And I don't know, one thing led to the other, but I was also feeling that whenever I was authentic, I was reprimanded. Whenever I was authentic, I was too much or I'm being difficult if I spoke up. And, but that usually happens with Black women professionals in the workplace. So studies have shown that when Black women try to be authentic, they encounter a lot of challenges in the workplace to the point that there are a lot of Black women that are entrepreneur because, you know, it's easier for them to succeed in entrepreneurial, you know, projects than it's actually to succeed in corporate America. So here I am doing everything that the system asked me to do. So the system said, you have to get your education. You have to work hard. You have to get good ratings. You have to do all of these things. But none of those things protected me when I was being authentic. When I was being authentic, I was a problem. I wasn't the woman with all these degrees and all these things anymore. That's such an important point to highlight. And it's unfortunate because I think a lot of like really great companies, a lot of really great workplaces are missing out on this amazing talent. I mean, there are so many people that have been on the podcast and and just have decided to quit their jobs and to your point, focus on entrepreneurship because they don't necessarily receive all this backlash. I mean, there's even a big trend of people working from home or deciding to work remote full time, not because they don't want to commute, not because of all these different reasons, but just for the fact that they can be left alone to do their work and they don't have to receive these like awkward interactions, the microaggressions, the racism, like it, it makes sense why people want to work from home. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, and the problem is, is that people think that these, um, the, the problems that the, the, the microaggression, the discrimination and everything that happens in the workplace, is like one person that does it to you is systemic. So when I was encountering a lot of issues to the point that I was told that I couldn't call myself faculty, even though my ID says faculty, um, why did I, they, I, why do you, uh-huh. why did they say that to you? Well, I feel like when I asked to move up the ladder, all of a sudden the the scrutiny came in. Like, oh, you call yourself faculty in social media. You have to, like, you've been doing that. Like, it was never a problem for three years. And then all of a sudden it became a problem. And I'm like, how come I can call myself faculty and other people can call themselves faculty? So things like that started to happen. And then I went and did a formal complaint. But then the system, there is a system in place that you know, Black women are not protected in the corporate environment or in academia. Academia that, you know, usually are these institutions that they say they have progressive ideologies. I mean, they have people that look like me. They even had my pictures plastered all over social media saying, you know, how inclusive they are and how they care for minorities and how they care for diversity and inclusion and how they promote women. There, I even participated in a photo shoot, pregnant. I was eight months pregnant. And that photo shoot was used in their website to showcase, you know, you know how inclusive they are and like, you know, asking people to enroll in their programs. But then when it was time to defend me or move me up the ladder, like the opportunity wasn't there. When one of those reasons was I believe it had to do with my authenticity, me living in my truth. And also, you know, people don't expect that if you look a certain way and you have an accent and you come from a barrio, that you're going to demand, you know, the same respect as everyone else. Um, and I've talked to other Black women uh, for the for my book. So I'm writing this book about leadership and the responsibility of a leader. 
And something that I found that is very common is that when you have these problems in the workplace with other people that sometimes do microaggressions and target you, um, the responsibility of making the relationship work is on you. Like I'm having a problem, I'm being targeted or I'm being discriminated against. How come is it on me, on the minority person to make the relationship work? Like when does the responsibility fall on the other person? It, it's kind of the analogy of like, you get beat up and then like, it's your responsibility to like fix the relationship with the person that just beat you up. <laughs> like it doesn't make sense. It doesn't make any sense. So that we still have that in the workplace in 2022. And I've seen it even in domestic violence, like you said, like sometimes women, you know, have suffered domestic violence and the, the, mm -hmm. the society, the community will tell them like, what did you do right. to get beaten up? And you're just like, how come we live in this society that continuously perpetuates this type of abuse, whether that's workplace abuse or domestic violence or discrimination, like people just see it as like, you must have done something. And I'm like, no, sometimes you do absolutely nothing. <laughs> You just exist right. and that's a problem. I'm I'm fascinated by you in survival mode, essentially trying to do all you can to get out of it. And then here you are though, experiencing microaggressions, yet you have the courage and the audacity to say, no, I'm I am faculty or no, I'm not your assistant. Like, call me what I am. Like, a lot of people in that survival mode would have been like, just let it go. They would just, ah, oh, don't worry about it. Let me just collect my checks. Like, what, what gave you the courage to just be like, no, like to stand up for yourself? Like, that's, that's something that a lot of people don't do, unfortunately. So I think a lot of it had to do with being naive about the culture, like me coming <laughs> from somewhere else and me saying, why is this person calling me her assistant? I'm not her assistant. Like, is there something wrong? And then, you know, I worked in this institution, the University of Miami has one of their values is diversity and inclusion. So I'm thinking I'm in the safe space. Like they have all these things going around about like you can be safe and we nurture talent and we nurture diversity and inclusion. So yo me estoy comiendo, like I'm believing that I'm like within my right to speak up because I work in an institution that values me as a person, yeah. which I think I was very, it was very naive of me because I worked I can, there yeah. before I became a faculty member. I used to lead these programs of diversity and inclusion for faculty. So I used to lead like these workshops and I used to participate in workshops on implicit bias, microaggressions and all of these things. And we usually encourage faculty supposedly and minorities to, you know, make it to, to live their truth and to not be mistreated and to do this. So I'm there leading this workshop. The last thing I'm thinking that, that this actually happens and that if I speak against it, I'm going to be reprimanded. So I was literally pushed out of my job. And it didn't matter that my ratings were up. It didn't matter that I was doing mentoring for Black students. It didn't matter that I was very involved with multicultural like studies and, and students and women in leadership and doing a lot of things for gender equity. None of that mattered because I was willing to speak up and I took that risk, like you said. Because when I talked to other uh, people that worked in the university or other faculty that was like color faculty, they will tell me like, you know, what you did was very courageous. Like nobody does that, like it happens, but nobody says anything. I was like, I didn't know that you couldn't say anything. Was there one particular moment where people started saying like, whoa, I can't believe you said that. Or I can't believe you did that. Cause you referenced being pushed out of your job. And I, I didn't know that. Yeah. So I was that my last day was a few months ago. Um, so when the, one of the big instances with, um, with me in the workplace. I had a meeting with my supervisor and I was asking to move up the ladder. 
and you know she made she made all these comments that had nothing to do with my performance it had to do with me being me like oh you're too much it's like the marisol show like you know people were uncomfortable with me being in the office and i'm like how does that have anything to do with my performance and that's the thing that happens with a lot of women of color and minority people is like whenever people sometimes want to um, eliminate your role or push you out, out of your job or anything, they will use things that had nothing to do with your performance. Nothing. Because they need a reason, right? They need a reason to justify, you know, why is it that they're not giving you the same fair chance as everybody else? And if you have a good performance, then it has something to do with your personality or the way that you interact with people, something that has nothing to do with like what actually are the requirements for the job. So I had a meeting with her and it was very traumatic. And then I received an email and that email had a list of things. And one of the things was like, and you cannot call yourself faculty. And that's when I was like, okay, this, there is a problem here because I never had an issue with this. So I, I made a formal complaint. And then, you know, one of the things that the system says is that, you know, make sure that you don't tell anybody about this complaint because we're trying to do an investigation. And, you know, that investigation usually doesn't go in, in, in benefits the victim, right? So then when I'm looking like months are passing, things are happening that are negatively impacting my career. And I'm like, where is the result of the investigation? Like, this is not leading anywhere. Then I started looking for external support. And some of that external support were Black faculty members in academia. I was like, well, how, how will you deal with this? I don't know what to do. I think that they're going to do, like, I think they're going to take my manager's side, so they're not going to take my side. So they, this is it. And they will look at me and say, oh my gosh, this is so great for you, but at the same time, Nobody will have done this. Like I, you basically call us out, like you called out the whole system and you called out like how they say that they are for minorities, but they're not. How they had an opportunity to develop you as a talent with all the years you had here. And they use minorities for diversity and inclusion efforts, but then they don't support them. Like they were actually very impressed. Um, but at the same time, that's when I started learning that Black people and minority people go through a lot of these things in corporate America and in academia, but they don't speak up because they know that, you know, you're not going to be protected. And that's when I learned, like, it's systemic. This is a systemic problem because if people are afraid to speak up because they're going to be reprimanded, then what type of system are we living in? That's wild. I did not know all that. I mean, as much as, as much negative things that potentially come with speaking out right it's obviously that it's obvious why people are fearful of doing that i'm curious and i'm curious about the number of positive messages or even like dms or people that come up to you and say like yo i was scared to wear my afro until i saw you do it or i was scared to do this until i saw you do it because I think many times we need permission. We need we need to see someone else do it for us to feel like it's safe enough to do it. Do people come up to you? Do people message you? What sort of yeah. positive feedback have you gotten as, as a result of you leaning into who you are? Oh, I received so much support from our minority staff and faculty. Like they don't know, like people that were in, in the investigation, they didn't know this. Uh, but I just had text messages. I had phone calls. I had people that still tells me like, keep fighting the good fight because I feel that uh, they felt like it happened and it happened. It happened still in front of their faces, like other black faculty members or other people see it, but they don't have the permission to speak up. Like, oh, okay, I'm going to go in for tenure. Or I'm going to go in for this. So if I speak up and I take your side publicly, it's going to harm me too. So what type of system is that? So 
people are looking to what you're doing. I received so much support from people that I didn't even think that they were going to support me. And they would be like, here's a lawyer, here's this, here's that, you should contact this person. I connected you to this person. And even like the work that I did in the Dominican Republic was because I, I came here for three days to do amazing work on gender equity was because somebody knew that I went through what I went through at the University of Miami. And they were like, well, you are a great talent. I don't know what's, why this happened to you. And they gave me this opportunity. So they have helped me from other sides because they felt like when that happened to me and I spoke up, and even though I wasn't able to get a resolution from the institution, they saw that somebody was willing to stand up. And they were like, oh, the, the, the fight is continuous. Like you can go out and, and, and say that something's wrong. You can, you can speak up. You know, there's some repercussion to speaking up, but we're trying to get to a space where there are no repercussions to speaking up. Because that shouldn't be like, it shouldn't be a, 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 you speak up, then I'm going to take something away from you. Like, this is, a, this is how we form oppression and oppression never leaves. Like it's just systemic oppression everywhere. I agree. And I, I think you're helping to inspire so many people to actually do that. Um, and it doesn't necessarily even have to, to, to be like speaking up, but this idea of we're like, we're too much, we're too, we're too, our, um, we're too bright, we're too this, we're too that. Um, maybe we're too much for you. Yeah. Because you're not used to seeing. But then why? Seeing, right, right. And, and why is not it used, I'm too much for you? Yeah. That just goes into like the bias and them not being used to seeing someone that looks like you in that position doing the work that you do. But mm -hmm. you're helping change someone's perspective, I think, on like what a professor looks like, what a professor acts like, how they dress, how they do everything, right? And we need more people to look like you to change that perception on like, to normalize essentially mm -hmm. what it is to be a faculty member at an academic institution. Mm -hmm. and, uh, and I think like I got a lot of good feedback from my own students. Mm. So my own students, they used to show up in the, in the class and see me there with my Afro, with my accent, teaching them. And a lot of minority students will come forward and, and just like thank me and feeling very like they are seen and they were, and this is like why representation is important and why being authentic is important. Because if I'm authentic in the classroom and I can stand in front of a group of students with my accent and my Afro and teach my class, then the student that shows up with the Afro will not have maybe the inclination to change their Afro or to code switch in order for them to to make it in an academic environment. So we need professors and we need faculty, we need lecturers that are authentic in the classroom. So that students that are going in the professional environment don't bring that trauma of code switching into professional environments. Agreed. And what inspires you or empowers you to continue being your most authentic self? I just, like I said at the beginning with my curls, this is me, like, what is the problem? Like my curls are mine. Like other people can live their truth. Like, why do I have to change? Like, I don't understand the reasoning. Like I understand there is a history with slavery. I understand all of that, but it's, this is 2022. Why are we oppressing a certain amount of people and we're allowing other people to live their authentic self? Like we need to change in order for the next generation to be their authentic self. So I think about my children and I think about future kids, like when, until when are we dragging this? I don't see a problem. Like if there is not a problem about somebody else being authentic, why should it be a problem for women of color? 
Mi gente, that wraps up this week's episode of the Quintuetas podcast. If you enjoyed this episode, please do us a favor, leave us a rating and a review. It just helps us in the algorithm to ensure that these stories get heard by as many people as possible. Scaling these stories and experiences is the only way that we're going to redefine professionalism. Thank you. I see you next week.